This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you guys today. Uh, Hey, I'm Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you're brand new... You might think, well, this is totally normal, but if you've been around for a while, you're going to think, you seem a little low energy today. And I want to tell you, it's not just because we've lost an hour of sleep, sweet Jesus. Um, Man, that thing that hit me last week took me out. This is my first day back at the office since last week. So uh, I'm not contagious anymore. So if you hugged me this morning and you walked in and now you're like ready to Lysol your shirt, you know what? Like, I hug like 300 of you every week, so you sickies always come hug me. I just, I'm just giving it back because I love you, and it's just one of the occupational hazards of being a church that really is so generous and loves to give. It really is. So, um, but I'm still a little low energy today, so if you could help me out. Like, I know, I know we're like an hour less of sleep. It's so early this morning, but I, I need you guys to help me out today, okay? So I'm going to give you everything I got. You got to give it back to me. Does that seem fair? All right. Excellent. Perfect. And by the way, um, just in case you're brand new to church and you're thinking, um, how can I know that God is good? How can I know that God is good? I just want to, I want to tell you, the Bible tells us there will come a day when God will make all things right, which means someday there will be no spring forward. So like God is good and he's perfect in all of his ways and he's making it someday. And even around the world right now, we see God moving because they don't do this whole thing. And so someday you won't have this. Praise the Lord. Uh, it's going to be a good day today. Hey, way to go getting here early. I'm impressed with you guys, man. I was here 45 minutes late to when I was supposed to be at church. And if you guys did what I did, it'd be very empty. So thank you for being better than your pastor. I love you guys. Um, you're going to want to grab this card. This is your Start Here card. Uh, this is your all-access pass to our team, so we can pray for you, partner with you, engage with you in any way that we can. So go ahead and get that filled out. Uh, you're going to want to grab your teaching notes. They'll tell you where we're going today, uh, some of the, the Bible verses we're looking at, and this idea that's just kind of captured my attention that I want to press into a little bit uh, today. Because we are in a series called Love Actually, and discovering what love actually looks like. And what we've said from the beginning is this, that there are two main views of love when it comes to marriage, and both promise the same thing. Both promise to get us to happily ever after. The first view says something like this, marriage is a contract between two people, and if you do your part and I do my part, then it will build uh, mutual respect, which will hopefully build partnership, which should turn into love, which will get us where we want to go to happily ever after. And every once in a while that works. The problem with that model is No one ever keeps the contract perfectly. So if you're a fairness person, there's always reason to blame your partner because they're not doing what they should have done. And I said this on week one. If you ever said to yourself, I didn't sign up for this. Well, you're squarely in the contract model. And maybe you just signed up for the wrong thing because maybe marriage isn't supposed to be a contract, but a different thing. And this is what the Bible tells us, that marriage is supposed to be um, a mutual self-giving of love where I would put she before me, and and you might put he before me in that relationship, where loving them, doing what's best for them, partnering with them is our number one priority. And it's not fair because someone has to go first, and it's not dependent on them. It's dependent on me. But the thing is, what that does is it actually creates safety. That's what we talked about last week, that if you really want to experience transformation in marriage, you got to have safety. And my wife, Maria, was up on stage. Didn't she kill it last week? 
Okay, I told you you got to help me out. Yeah, come on, team. She killed it last week. And we were talking about building safety into a relationship. Safety first. And if you know me, you know I'm all about safety. Uh, Not at all. I'm all about danger and excitement. But when it comes to marriage and transformation, safety has to be there. Because when we feel safe in a relationship, then we can be honest in a relationship. And when there's honesty and trust, trust leads to transformation. And so we walk through that whole thing. Uh, Today what I want to talk about, though, is something that uh, it's a pretty serious topic. Uh, it, it's kind of a, not heavy, but it's, it's a topic that none of us wants to find ourselves here. And if we do, we know it causes pain. And um, before I get into it, I, I want to say this. If you find yourself either um, on whatever end of this topic, you've ever experienced this in your life. Maybe you've been the recipient of it. Maybe you've acted upon it. Um, I, I want you to know that, that there's healing for you and grace for you. And what I'm going to pray at the end is that God would actually bring healing in our lives. Um, because when we get married, we always say, till death do us part. And this is what I want. And I want to be us forever. We want to beat the odds. We don't just want to be housemates, but we want to actually build intimacy. Uh, but what happens in marriages is, is the topic of affairs. Like, uh, affairs happen, and, and people cheat. And what do we do with that? Um, and it's a pretty serious thing. And when an affair happens, everyone gets hurt. There's not anyone, whether you are the initiator or the receiver or the child, everyone gets hurt. And everyone has regret and pain. And so God would desire that we would never have to experience that, but that we would actually learn how to protect ourselves from that, how to protect our relationships in it. And I want you to know if you're here and you've ever experienced that on whatever side, boy, God wants to bring some healing for you today. He doesn't want you to have to sit with the pain or the regret or the hurt, but actually to start over um, even and to create a newness and a wholeness out of that. But because it's such a serious topic, every once in a while, I hear pastors take stabs at how to affair-proof your marriage. The problem is, every time I hear it, I think that's actually not how to affair-proof your marriage. And these are pastors who I genuinely appreciate and respect. They're smarter than me. Uh, They're more engaged. So that's terrifying, right? Whenever you look at someone who's smarter than you further along, and they're all saying one thing, and you're thinking, no, that's not actually the sum and total of it. It's actually something else. That should cause you to pause, uh, unless you're totally just like, I got this figured out. And yet every time I hear these pastors talk, I think, well, that doesn't seem to be working because the same pastors who are saying this are then falling into affairs sometimes. Uh, and, And people in their communities are still falling into affairs or having affairs. And I think, well, there must be something else. So here's what I genuinely or generally hear uh, on this topic. It, it goes something like this. Don't. Don't. Okay. Don't have an affair. And here's how you don't have an affair. Don't engage with the opposite sex. Well, that seems odd to me. And they walk us down a path. They say this. If you want to affair-proof your marriage, don't be alone with the opposite sex. Just don't. In an elevator, in a car, at a lunch meeting, don't. Uh, If you want to affair-proof your marriage, don't travel together. Here's something interesting. Um, Just by way of full communication, I wrote this message at a pastor's retreat or pastor's conference in Las Vegas with our female executive pastor. So I just want to clarify, like... Some of you are like, oh, sweet Jesus, where am I? What is this church? Not, 
in separate hotel rooms, very protected, very safe. But traditional Christian logic would say, do not go to a conference with the opposite sex. Now, they'd be fine with me going to a pastor's conference in Vegas by myself, but even with other women there, and there were other women at the conference, but don't go with someone from your staff. And I'm thinking, well, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. Because why would I? It just doesn't make any sense. We'll just, we're going to stop there. I'm still sick, so we're going to try to temper what I say today because the filters are down. But don't travel together because for sure if you travel together, the next step on the airplane is an affair. Clearly, that's the next thing that'll happen. They say, don't, um, don't talk about your personal life with the opposite sex. Like, keep work, work, have a, a men's group or a women's group, but don't share. Don't talk about your kids, your life. Definitely don't talk about your marriage with the opposite sex. The theory is, if you share your personal life with someone more intimately than you do with your spouse, you're primed for an affair. You're opening up for emotional entanglement. And here's the thing. All of those things, as much as like we laugh, those are actually, can be very helpful. All of those things. If you're in a tough spot in your marriage, intimacy is low with your spouse. Um, you guys are barely hanging on. Um, you're kind of, we're in kind of maintenance mode. There's no real engagement happening. I'm wondering if I really do want to stick then yes, don't go out to lunch with the opposite sex. Don't start sharing personal details with your life. Probably don't go to Vegas for a conference with her or him. Probably not. So those are good safeguards for a season, for a season. But at best, what they can do is give safeguards when you're in a vulnerable state already in your marriage. Safeguards. They will not lead to freedom, and they will not actually build what you need to build to long-term affair-proof your relationship. And at worst, what it does is it sets up a false sense of security. We've built enough walls around us that it builds up a false sense of security to where you walk up to an edge and you don't even know you're there because you feel safe. And then all of a sudden you just fall off and you're like, how did that happen? Well, I built up all these walls, so I wasn't actually thinking about wise choices because I had safeguarded myself. And here I am all of a sudden. It's like this, uh, I don't know about you guys, I love watching travel shows with my kids because I want to I wanna engender in them a desire to travel. Like, I love adventure, I want them to have adventure, so Saturday morning, it's not Saturday morning cartoons, it's Saturday morning, Animal Planet, Human Planet, Wild China, we watched Wild China this last week, because I want my kids to have a sense of adventure. Like, this is... This is fantastic. This world that we live in, why not explore it? And we were watching this human planet show, uh, really, really good, by the way, and they were documenting people who live around water. And they talked about this family in Malaysia that actually lives on a boat full time. They're always only in the water on a boat. The husband will go in to town every once in a while to pick up some, uh, some supplies that they need, but basically they live in the ocean in the water on a houseboat. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking, now, when a child is born there, it would make sense to say to that child, do not go in the water because you will drown. We would all say that, right? To an infant, to a toddler. Let's fast forward 25 years, though. That infant's now 25 years old. And if you're saying to that 25-year-old, 
hey, the best way not to drown is never get in the water. That child is missing out on life. What's the best thing to do? Teach them how to swim. Teach them how to swim. Don't put up walls that say never leave this houseboat. There's a whole ocean out there that you're missing if you never leave the houseboat. Better to learn how to swim. And and when we think about the world, the world is full of the opposite sex. I did a little research for you, and wouldn't you know, it's pretty evenly split. 49.2% male. We are down a little, but not out. And 50.8% female. The solution to affair-proofing our marriage is not never engage with the opposite sex. Because you are cutting yourself off from half of the population. Including co-workers, including friends. Now you're sitting in life group and you're thinking, hey, we really connect, but I, I can't connect too much because, you know, obviously the next step is we trip into an affair. That, that cannot be the sum and total of God's wisdom when it comes to how to affair-proof a relationship. Wouldn't it be better to learn how to swim in multi-gendered waters? Amen. Somebody gets it. Keep on talking back. So I began looking at the Bible and saying, okay, what is God's, what is God's overarching theme in the Bible? Depending on how you were raised, you're going to answer this differently. I would say this. The God in the Bible is a God of can. Now, some of us were raised that the God of the Bible is a God of can't. You can't do this. You can't do that. It's a God that built walls around us because the only way to safety is to safeguard. But it seems to me when I read the Bible, the Bible is full of stories of a God of can, which is good because the human spirit likes can a lot more than we like can't, don't we? I was with my kids a couple weeks ago, uh, and Landon, our five-year-old and I, he's six now, so I just want to clarify that. He was five at the time. Landon and I were folding laundry. Because you can do that with a six. Did you know that? Six-year-olds can fold laundry. Those little hands are so good at folding laundry and putting socks away. And it's good for our kids, by the way, to have chores in the house. This isn't a parenting message. I'm just telling you. Yeah. Side benefit. It's good for parents. But listen, our kids want to be producers in the family. And when they're only receivers, they become little consumers. And then they have little bad attitudes. So in our house... We have chores because, listen, I want you to have a sense of you're doing something in this family and you matter in this family. This isn't a, okay, this isn't a, it's a family talk. I'm just saying. So Landon and I are doing some, uh, some folding of laundry and, and Maddie comes in, our eight-year-old, and I said, hey, Maddie, can you go clean Landon's room, please? Because he and I are finishing laundry. Now, Maddie looked at me the way that most of our kids would look at us. If you said to them, go clean your sibling's room for them. She said, um, it's not my room. I said, yes, I know that, because that's why I said, go clean Landon's room. (laughs) And I thought for a minute, as we're folding laundry, Landon and I, I said, okay, if the human spirit really likes can more than can't, let's see if this actually works. So I said, okay, Maddie, I'm going to give you two options. You can come over here and switch jobs with Landon, and you can fold laundry with me, or you can go and clean his room while he finishes folding laundry. Which would you like to do? She thought about it and waited out. She said, I would like, I would like, I would like to go clean Landon's room. I said, well, then you can go do that. (laughs) Because we like can more than we like can't. 
Pastor Ron always says he tried to tell his kids yes as much as he could because he knew he'd sometimes have to tell them no. I love that. We like can. We like can. So what can we do to a fair proof our marriage? And I was reading through and Jesus struck me with something. It was so good. It was just one simple can. Just one can. Not hundreds of cans. And it was, it was, it comes from John chapter 15, verse 1. It might be up on the screens. I'm pretty sure it's in your notes. John 15, 1 says this. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. Grab your notes. I think it should be, maybe not. Yeah. Cool, cool. Good. My father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that, in, uh, in me that does not bear fruit. While every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. Verse 3, he's talking to his, his followers, and these are for Jesus' followers like you and me. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken over you. Now, last week we, we pressed into this even more, but I just want to touch on it for a second. Do you notice Jesus' starting place for you? You're already enough in who you are in Jesus. He's not saying you're pretty dirty and we got to fix that before you can come in. He's saying you are already clean because of the word I've spoken over you, that you are children of God, that those of us who walk in relationship with God are adopted sons and daughters into God's family, that you are already clean. You are already enough because of the word I've spoken over you. Verse four, remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And verse five, just, oh man, it just grabbed me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Underline this next part. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you, what's that word? Will, will, not might, not perhaps, not could. You will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That word remain, or in some translations, abide, is the word that's used there, means to stay continually in the presence of. Stay continually in the presence. Don't ever leave their presence. It's a sense of of partnership, of oneness. The whole picture of a vine and branches is that it's all coming from the same place, that we are together in this. It's a sense, remaining means that I'm not going to run from. Jesus says, if you don't run from me, but if you stay with me, you will bear much fruit. If we want to bring about good lasting fruit in our lives, and he's using this kind of a gardener metaphor, um, vine metaphor. We'll we'll, we'll assume it's grapevines because we're Sonoma County. We like that. He's saying, if you want to bear good fruit in your life, like, good things just coming out of you. They don't come from a bunch of don'ts. They come from a simple do. Do remain. Do stay. Do check in. Do walk in partnership with me. So I was thinking there are three key relationships or remaining spots if you really want to affair-proof your marriage. And again, those, there's nothing wrong with the safeguards but they're lacking transformation. They're good safeguards for a season. They won't lead to transformation for a lifetime. And what God desires for our marriages and our relationships is lifetime transformation, not seasonal safeguards. 
So there are three things. One is we got to remain in relationship with God. Jesus says that is the key relationship. If you want to bear fruit, if you want to display the transforming power of God in your life, it's not a bunch of don'ts. It's one do. Do live continually in relationship with me. See, some of us were raised in church traditions that make this very tricky. Because the stories we were told about God growing up make us want to do anything but remain in him. If you were raised in the church, you might have been raised with this story that God is an angry God. That God is just waiting to take you out at the ankles. That he's just waiting for you to do something wrong, so bam! That woke somebody up. So bam! He can hit you when you're down. Some of us were raised with a story about God that was a little different. God was more of a distant God. Um, God set the world in motion. He sits over there. He watches things play out, but he's not really engaged with us on a regular basis. That was our story of God. And so we came to church each week, and we heard stories about, you know, what God did, what God said, but there was no sense that God was here with us in the journey. A third one is that God is an ignorant God, that God is kind of like um, Grandpa from The Simpsons, you know, kind of just, am I dating myself? Um, I'd like to date myself. I'm a fun date. Um, <laughs> that God just kind of bumbles around up in heaven, and maybe you were raised in a church tradition that said, you know what, you can, you can sin all week long, and when I say sin, I mean the things that we think and say and do that we know are hurting us, hurting others, separating us from God, that we just keep kind of doing until God takes control of our lives and we start partnering with him. Some of us were raised in a church tradition that said you can sin all week long, come to church, dump out your sin bucket, take your communion, get back out, fill up your sin bucket all week long, come back to church the next week, dump out your sin bucket, because God's kind of an ignorant God. He doesn't really care. He's not really there. Like, as long as you come, do your thing, you're fine. But the God of the Bible is not any of those. The God of the Bible that Jesus paints is the God we just sung about. A good, good father. Perfect in all of his ways. Present all the time. But God's not, his dominant narrative is not angry, waiting to slam us. Now we are told that God, he guides and corrects us, but he guides and corrects us like a good, good father would guide and correct children. With a loving, gentle correction. That God's not distant. The God that Jesus paints is a God who actually cares very much about your everyday affairs. What's going on in your life? What are you thinking right now? What fears and insecurities and questions do you have right now? And the God that Jesus paints is not an ignorant God. He actually already knows everything that we're thinking and saying and about to do. He actually knows it. And get this, he's not embarrassed of you. And he's not angry at you. He actually wants to share life with you. Here's why this is so important. If God really is all-knowing, all-loving, if God's dominant story is not that God is just waiting to punish you, but actually wants to bring, bring you to a place of healing and freedom and wholeness, well, then all of a sudden we can, we can be honest with God. We can just talk to God. How many of us in our prayers sometimes, 
we script it. We, we know the script. We write the script. We tell God what we know we should be saying to God because we assume God doesn't know what's actually going on in here. It's like, God, please help my marriage. That's, you know, God, I'm, uh, you know, we're struggling. He's like, yeah, I know you're struggling. I know the depths of your struggling. I can see it. I'm with you in it. If God actually knows and cares and can do something about it, then we can be honest. Honest with ourselves about what's going on and honest with God about what's going on. And that's so key to a fair-proofing of marriage. Honesty. Because when we pretend like things aren't going bad, we're lying to ourselves and we think we're keeping it from God, but we're not, and we're actually setting ourselves up to fall. When we pretend that we aren't developing feelings for someone else, like, no, there's no connection there. We are actually walking ourselves toward the very thing that we're terrified of having happen. And we don't ultimately want it, but we're not honest about it. And God would say, no, just come to me. I already know what's going on. Let's just have an honest conversation. I want to dialogue with you. You're my child. Tell me what's going on. Tell me the tension. Tell me the struggle. You could say to God, did you know you can say to God, God, I'm struggling to want to be married right now. And God's not going to be ashamed of you in that moment, that God actually wants that partnership. Because once you're real and honest with him, then you can start working from that place. And then healing can begin. But if we're not honest with ourselves, if we're not honest with God, we won't know that we're walking towards a cliff until we're too late. And I talk, you know, I talk to folks sometimes, and, and we're just kind of debriefing wreckage, whatever the wreckage is. It could be this, it could be something else. And we're debriefing it. And they look back and they say, I could see all the signs looking back, but I had no idea in the moment. Well, there's a sense in which they weren't fully honest with themselves. Looking back, they can see that they marched themselves towards pain. But in the moment, it was hard to notice. And the first key is just be honest. Just be honest with God. Remain in that relationship. The second relationship to remain in is remain in the relationship with your spouse. This is the best way to affair-proof your marriage. It's not to cut off relationships with other women and other men. It is to increase relationship with your spouse. The number one best way is to learn how to open up with your spouse, to learn how to be vulnerable with your spouse, to learn how to share life with your spouse. That is the best way to affair-proof your marriage. Because listen, we could have all the, all the safeguards, but if we don't open up to our spouse, we're still in danger. Maybe not in danger of having an affair, but definitely in danger of becoming just roommates who don't actually know each other and don't actually love each other. And who wants that? None of us does. If we want to bear good fruit, we have to choose to remain in our spouse. Choose to remain. We all made that choice when we got married because we said it. For better or worse, till death do us part, or if you were raised in my church tradition, my pastor said, for better or worse, till death do us part, or the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he was pretty sure the Lord was coming in my lifetime. Which could be I'm still young. We've all made that commitment, but the question is, have we made it every day since then? I'm going to choose to remain in this relationship. I'm not going to run emotionally, intellectually. 
I'm going to choose to be open and honest and vulnerable even when it's hard. Next week, Pastor Ron is preaching and he's talking about communication, how to move from fact sharing to life sharing. It's going to be so good for some of us because we just need some, some tools on how do I actually start talking again? How do we actually start engaging with each other again? Because we've been so long not, but how do we jump back into it? One of the things we could do, here's just some ideas to build intimacy. You can write them in your notes because I didn't, I didn't add them in there for you. There's a book called The Five Love Languages. Uh, it's an older book. It's a good book. Uh, it talks about how we give and receive love. And, and so you can figure out how does your spouse best receive love and then start giving love that way. How do I best receive love and then have conversations around it? One of the things we can do to build intimacy is create regular rhythms of connection, just rhythms of connection in our lives. Date nights are a good example of that. I have people say, you know, if you, uh, again, pastors who I appreciate and respect say, if you really love your spouse, a date night every week. And I think that is a fantastic goal to shoot for in someone's life. Like, who, who does this? Who, okay, how many of you with kids? Let's just, let me just ask you, because I just want to feel bad about myself. So how many of you with kids do date nights once a week? Because we need to talk to you. One, hey, that's not bad. Good for you. Praise God. That's fantastic. We don't. We don't. At best, we get three times a month, usually twice a month. But it's the rhythm, right? We're trying to create a rhythm where we can actually connect with each other, where we're not doing chores, not correcting people, not trying to get some last-minute work done, just rhythms of date night. So Maria and I, we try to do two to three times a month. Um, in a tense season, by the way, I've had couples say, we tried that date night thing, it didn't work at all. I'm like, well, what do you mean it didn't work? They're like, well, we went out and we just got in a big fight. It's like, well, what were you talking about? Well, we're in a really rough spot because our finances are really tight. And so we decided our date night was a good time to talk finances. I said, well, you were mistaken, clearly. So if you're in a tense situation in your marriage, maybe don't talk about that on your date night. Maybe talk about something fun. Remember why you fell in love in the first place. Get dressed up. Look sharp. Fellas, clean it up. Put on your best plaid and take her out. Uh, A third one, and and I mean this in all sincerity, spice it up. You want to build intimacy in your marriage? Spice it up. Sexually, I'm talking about, just in case we weren't clear. Did you know that the—I'm not making this up. The ancient rabbis in Jesus' day, they believed so much that sexual intimacy was a glue to marriage that on the Sabbath day, which they celebrated once a week, that was one of the mandates they had. One of the mandates, one of the ways you celebrate God, they said, and this wasn't in the Bible, this was their kind of added on stuff, but I'll take this one. (laughs) They said one of the ways to celebrate God is to be intimate sexually with your spouse on the Sabbath day. Why? Because it's a big deal. As long as health permits, couples should be regularly engaging physically, sexually with each other. It is a glue that holds a marriage together, and it will build intimacy with you. So um, for what it's worth, someone's taking a note on that right now. Like I said, we do, you know, two to three date nights a month. That's our rhythm. That's what we try to shoot for. Um, Every five years or so, three, four, we're trying to get better at it, but it's been about every three, four years. Um, We take an extended time away from the kids, three or four days. My kids just said to me yesterday, hey, next time you go to Jamaica, can we come? And I looked at them and I said, no. (laughs) They said, why? I said, because it's so fun. (laughs) 
Why? I said, because this is a time for mom and I to just be together and love each other and, uh, and just spend time together. And I take you guys on, on great vacations. We have fun as a family. But this is our time. So no, I'm not taking you. Like, get out of here. <laughs> and then the third... This is fun when I'm sick, right? We all enjoy this. Who's having a good time? And the third one is remain in relationship with a trusted friend. Fear of being known and accepted is the thing that keeps us in isolation as a community. Fear of being known and accepted. If they know me, will they accept me? Maria quoted Brene Brown last week, and she was talking about shame. And shame is the idea that if you really knew me, you would withdraw from me. Here's the thing about sin. Sin grows best in isolation. It grows best in isolation. You could have all the best protective barriers in the world, but when that point of temptation comes, if you don't have a friend where you feel safe and accepted to actually talk to, you're in danger. You're in danger because fear grows best in isolation. Sin grows best in isolation. There's this book called The Cure that I suggested last week, and uh, our executive pastor, Angela, turned me on to this one chapter of it, and she said, check this out. And I loved this quote in The Cure. It's talking about community, and it says this, what if it's less important that everyone gets fixed than that everyone, that, I'm sorry, what if it's less important that everyone gets fixed than it is that nothing ever has to be hidden? What if it's less important that everything gets fixed than it is that nothing has to be hidden in a relationship? Because if nothing has to be hidden in a relationship, if nothing has to be swept to the corner, then it creates space for God to do some fixing. Because it's God who does the fixing. It's not us. We partner with him, but as long as we have things hidden over here, because we're sure if you actually knew that about me, you would never accept me that we don't bring it up for God to actually do the fixing. So we have to have a few key relationships. The New Testament actually assumes that we have these kinds of relationships. There's a little letter in the end of the New Testament called the book of James. And the author assumes these close abiding, remaining in friendships. When he says this, he says, Therefore, And this is in the context of actually having these relationships. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And I used to think that James was saying, when you sin, your penance is, you have to confess it to someone else so that they can like critique you and ridicule you and you can get the full shame and weight of what you've done. That's just part of what you have to do before you can get back on the right track. How many of us thought confession was that way? Am I the only one? Yeah. Why do you think you walk into a room and close the door so no one gets like the shame of it is just like, okay, this is part of my penance. I got to do it. That's not what James is talking about here. James is assuming that we've got a friend so close that they accept us right where we are. So we can be totally honest about our worst moment without being judged. And then they can pray for us. And they can partner with us leading back to healing. What if you had a friend where you could just say, we are genuinely struggling to want to be married right now. Without fear of judgment. And then from that place, 
Start engaging, praying together with that friend, working together, figuring out some tools. What if you actually had a friend where if you found yourself in this place, like, wow, I'm really attracted to him or her, you could go to your friend and say, I'm finding myself really attracted to someone other than my spouse. That will create safety. Because then we're dealing with what's actually going on. But until we have an actual close friend, an actual friend who accepts us right where we are, all of us, boy, it doesn't matter how many safeguards we have. We're still in danger. So how do we really affair-proof a marriage? It's not a bunch of don'ts. It's a few do's. Do remain in relationship with God. Do remain in relationship with your spouse. Do remain in relationship with a friend or two. And when necessary, create some safeguards for a season so that you don't actually accidentally do damage that is hard to recover from. I want to talk to you as we close the door about the key relationship. It is the key relationship. All the other relationships flow out of that, and it's the relationship with God. God invites us into a remaining relationship where we would, we would partner with him every day. It's not a pray a prayer once and then you one and done, you know, I've got my life insurance for eternity. Like, uh, it is a walking with God in partnership relationship. And God did everything for us. When he gave his life on the cross, God created the space for this relationship because he wants it so badly. And in the context of that relationship, then he walks with us to freedom. He doesn't give us the rules to get us there. He walks with us there. And if you've never entered into relationship with God, that type of partnership, I want to give you a chance to do it in just a second. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for healing for anyone affected by this uh, topic. And then I'm going to pray for you if you're ready to enter into a relationship with God. So would you join me as we pray? Lord, this is a, a serious topic which I know could be bringing up some pain for some of my friends in this room. And Lord, I don't want pain for pain's sake. I know you don't either. But if this pain creates space for healing, Lord, I'm thankful for the space. And I would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do a healing work, that you would take that place of pain and brokenness, whether my friend was the perpetrator or the receiver of this, that you would take that place of pain and brokenness and regret, that you would do the work of healing that you promised to do, that you would, that you would partner with them to redeem that painful moment, that they would be able to experience your freedom, and that if at all possible, a restoration of relationship would be there. And if you're here today and you're ready to commit your life to God, you can repeat this simple prayer after me. You can, you can simply say to God, God, I want to have a relationship with you. So would you come into my life? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Would you show me what it looks like to walk with you? God, would you bring about forgiveness for my sins? Would you begin to bring healing for the places where the sin of others has really hurt me?
And would you show me what it looks like to remain in relationship with you as we take this journey together? Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.